Ahead is the full recording of a sermon and worship service at New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church in East Toledo, Ohio. We hope that you've chosen to listen to it because you believe that the Lord may speak to you through the sermon, through the message, and you want to have fellowship with God's people in this uh, technology-based way. We hope that as you listen, you will grow to new heights in Jesus. Thank you and God bless. Praise the Lord. I hope my tomorrow begins today. All right. So we come together, obviously, for one primary purpose in mind, and that is to listen to what the Lord may have to say to us today, to honor Him. I hope you'll give Him your attention. So whatever might be before you, whatever people are talking about, whatever might be in the sermon, whatever might be in your lesson today, I hope your purpose is to give God the honor and glory and attention that He deserves. That being said, I want to kind of give you just a couple of uh, sort of... Uh, steps and things that we're going to do that are a little different today. For a couple of weeks here approaching Easter, we're doing things a little bit differently, so we will not have an inspirational moment time. I hope you've been listening to the Lord all week long, you've been reading your Bible, and we won't have that opportunity to come together and hear those things, but save them up, because we'll bring that back. Uh, Right now we're focused on a couple of other things. Last week we had uh, Marriage and Relationships Sunday and focused a lot on what we can learn, what God would have us to learn from proper relationships, uh, primarily between men and women, but also between the church and Christ. And then today, we're focused on the Lord's Supper. We're going to learn a lot about the Lord's Supper during the sermon time. Uh, And then we will come back together. All the adults and children will come in, and we will all have the Lord's Supper together at the end of the service today. And our service will go by fairly quickly. So it's not going to be a thing where, because we have the Lord's Supper, that stretches out the length of the service. It'll still go by fairly quickly. And then at the end of that, we will have just a short break and then come back together for the membership meeting. I don't think we have any new business as of right now. So if you have new business, there was a motion you needed to make, please get that to Randy. Not during the service. This is God's time. We're focused on the Lord now. But in that brief interval between the service and there, you'll have just a few minutes you could do that. And there are papers 
that look kind of like this. If you needed to make a motion in the business meeting, you can always fill one of these out and hand them to Brother Randy at any time throughout the month. And that's our opportunity to decide as a church what we're going to do. And you may have an idea. Say, I think the church should do this. Or I think the church should do that. Obviously, if you have an idea and you think the church should do it, we expect you to be part of it. But in any case, that's your opportunity to make a motion and suggest that. Those are time to deal with membership issues and so on. As meetings don't tend to take too long here because we focus and, and get the stuff done and get out so we can get on to serving the Lord. Okay, So that's going to be at the end today. Now, it gets exciting because we're headed into Easter weekend. Next Saturday is our crosswalk. And so the crosswalk is we take the big 16-foot crosses outside against the building and, and other smaller crosses, assuming we have the manpower, our banner, which says we believe that God is going to re revive Toledo through Jesus Christ, his son, and um, the flags, and we march through the community. Now, our route marching through the community is 1.2 miles long this year, so it is a lengthy route. But don't, don't, don't be afraid. You walk that much all the time, most of you. And if you're not physically able to do so, we're going to try to have a couple of vehicles there so you can trail along and, and still walk the route. And we will not put the cross down, so we'll need manpower. And we have some folks who are going to be out of town who are, are, who are some of our strong folks. And so if you're uh, willing to come and help carry crosses, please, please do. And drag your Christian friends along. This is a statement about we believe that God will revive the city of Toledo through Jesus Christ's Son. And I believe that's already afoot. I believe it's already happening. Uh, you know, the signs that say you will do better here in Toledo? Well, it doesn't mean that you're going to do better because you live in Toledo like they think it means. It means Jesus Christ is at work here, and as God works here, we will do better. All right? And that's what I think. So uh, that's Saturday. And what time are we coming to meet on Saturday? At 1.30. Okay. We start March at 2. We start March at 2. going to line up right out here at 1.30. After that, there will be children's activities, primarily a candy scatter, Easter egg hunt kind of thing, and the resurrection Egg's story will go along with that, and so they will hear the, the story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's all Saturday, starting at 1.30. You're okay. All starting at 1.30, okay? And then on Sunday, we have a special day. Our service starts at what time on Sunday? 11. 11, still 11.30. So Breakfast is at 10.30. So we're, asking, we're providing ourselves, because we're the church and we do it, and we're riding ourselves with breakfast beginning at 10.30. So those of you who ride in van transportation, I'll be here for breakfast at 10.30. So you ride with me, you'll be here for breakfast at 10.30, or you can find your own way here, and then I'll happily take you home. So I'll be here for breakfast at 10.30, okay? So that's the plan. And so that means we're all going to get out of bed a little bit earlier. And I would encourage you maybe, would you do this? Think about praying a little on Easter Sunday morning. It is the anniversary in the day which we celebrate. It isn't. Remember that Easter is a holiday that moves. It doesn't sit on the same day every year. And that's because it, it's related to the Passover uh, and, 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 and the period of time that the Jews were celebrating. Okay? So that holiday slides. But nonetheless, Easter is the day at which we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And for us, it's sort of the height of that because we celebrate that every Sunday. This is Resurrection Sunday today, and it has been for the last 50 Sundays, and it will be again next Sunday. But it will be Easter. It will be the day we celebrate the anniversary of his resurrection. And so we'll start breakfast at 1030. We'll start service at 1130. And it's a special kind of service. There's all kinds of neat things that are going on during the service as far as it's not. We will not have one full length, like 35 minute or whatever sermon. That's not going to happen. Something different. So come excited for what the Lord is going to do on that day. And it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to give the Lord all the glory. But today, right now, right here, we're going to focus our attention. We're going to pray together and focus our attention on God. Let the Lord speak into your life and change you as he sees fit. Because he really is the one who knows. He knows what you need to be made up of and what you were made for. 
and he knows how to lead you to that place. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this place, this time, this day. We ought to thank you for the air that we breathe. We ought to thank you for the individual muscle fibers in our body. Lord, we thank you for our minds. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus and the ability to be free. That as we follow him and learn the truth and a first-hand knowledge and live the truth, that we can truly be free. Lord, that's a desire of our hearts because that's what we were created for. To be free and in a relationship with you. Help us, Lord, today to hear from you. Help us, Lord, today to honor you with our voices. Help us to let this time, this place, and this people be under your governance. Lead us. Guide us. Help us. Make us strong. As we sing, let us praise you. And we pray it all in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said? Amen. Would you stand? If you're comfortable and able to do so, please stand and sing this next song with us.
You can be seated at this time. Before we begin, there's just a couple of quick things that we need to get out of the way to make sure. You know, you, you've heard when he said, she said, and there's one side of the story and then there's the other side of the story. There's usually at least two sides to every story. Um, and so today we are going to hear one side of the Lord's Supper story. It is maybe the black and white side, the clear cut side, the simplistic side, and yet if you stop and think about it, it is the most challenging side. We're going to hear that in a moment. But there's something in a sense that the Lord's Supper is not about, and that's the other side of the story. And it is maybe the larger side of our story. The Lord's Supper is not about the simple gospel that we tell people on how to get saved. It's not about that. The Lord's Supper is not about the ABCs of salvation. You may have heard it that way. It's not about if you repent and believe and follow the Lord, you can be saved. That's not what it's about. So we're going to stop for one second and make sure we get that side of the story before we go into and I show you how uh, it's about the other side. The Bible says that if a person uh, accepts or realizes that they have sin, and the Bible says that we all have sin and fall short of the glory of God, if we accept and realize that we have that and that the wages of that sin is death or a separation from God, that if we recognize that, then in the same verse, Romans 6.23, as that second part, it says that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, his son. And so that is essentially the gospel that we need to be delivering into the world, that if people would recognize that they have sin, and sin is when you don't do what it is that God would want you to do or when you do what it is that God would want you not to do. Let me say that again. It is when you don't do what God would want you to do or when you do what God would want you not to do. Either way, that's sin. It's evil. It's wrong. It's not what God wanted. It is maybe rising up out of who we are, our flesh, our desires, our temptations, the world teachings, the way our, way our parents raised us, etc., etc. There's a lot of reasons why we do the things we ought not to do. But either way, we've done the things we ought not to do. If we accept that everyone has done that, and then we accept that the wages of that is sin or separation from God, then the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, his son. You simply need to accept that and call out to the Lord and say, okay, Lord, I'm ready. I accept that free gift. I accept that Jesus has paid the price for me and begin to live accordingly. Now, it's about a Lord, which means that person's in charge of your life. Jesus is Lord. And, and you have to have him as Lord in order to receive that gift. Okay? But it is a gift. And so no matter where you're at, as is, there is always room at the cross. No matter where you're at, you're always able to be saved. No matter what you've done, you're able to be saved. But if you will not, then you are not. That's the simple gospel. But the other side of the story is portrayed essentially in the Lord's Supper. Okay? So be aware of that as we go. And now here's the second thing. Um, when I was um, 15 years old, I had it in my mind I was going to learn to drive. And I thought, I'm going to learn to drive, and then I'm going to be able to go all over the place. So I'll take my car, didn't have a car, and I'll drive on my gas, and didn't have gas, and I'll go wherever I want to go. I'll go play games with my friends, I'll go to the movies whenever I want. I had it in my mind I would do all of that. And then my dad said, well, if you're going to have a car at 16, you've got to pay for it yourself. And all of a sudden, I had in my mind, I need some money. And I thought, I'm going to have to get a job. 
And I told her, that'll be cool. I'll drive my car to my job. I'll work my job. I'll pay for my gas. I'll put it in my car. And then I'll drive to the movies and I'll drive to the games, everything like that. And then my dad said, if you're going to have a car and you're going to be able to drive it wherever you want, you're going to have to have your own insurance. Mm. And I started thinking, this going to have to be a good job. I can't just mow lawns for a few people around the neighborhood anymore. I'm going to have to make some decent money. And just before I turned 16 years old, I started to look for a job. And I found a job, the same place my brother did when he was 16, which was at Kroger's. Uh, and so I started to make a couple hundred bucks every couple weeks. And back in the day, that was enough. I was easily able to save up enough money to buy that car, to put gas in that tank, to buy that insurance. And I was able to go and play games with my friends and go to the movies and have a few dates, believe it or not, and, uh, and all of that. But I can tell you exactly how much I paid for that car. I can tell you exactly how long it took me to earn that money. I can even tell you how much gas I put in in the first year. Now, that, most people can't do that. But the, what my dad was trying to teach me is if something costs you something, you tend to value it more. And I want you to bear that in mind then as we look at this text. Now, when we go to the text here at New Heights, we typically get a little bit excited. You might say amen or hallelujah or just moan if that's all you can come up with or hoot or howl or whistle or yahtzee or something uh, as we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Thank you very much. That is our marking. This is the moment at which we will begin to read the scripture that God inspired himself and sent to us over two millennia so far. And I would ask you to allow yourself to be changed, not by what I say. What I say, I may get it right or wrong. I'll, try, I'll do my best. Of course, I do my best. I'm trying to say exactly what God wants me to say. But whether I get it right or wrong, you are individually responsible to listen to the Lord today. And I hope you'll do that. And we're reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, to start. Now, as I do this, I'll break down. We will not use a lot, go to a lot of different passages of Scripture today, but we will use several. Um, and some I'll just mention. And so if you're, if you're a note taker, and I highly recommend you do that, especially if you really want to go home and dwell on what we talk about here and take notes. There are discussion guides back there on that board every week, and actually a lot of times they're in the bulletin. And so you have the opportunity to uh, take notes and then think about it again later, what the Lord was speaking to you during this time, our time together today. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23, reading from the New American Standard Version, actually, is what I have in front of me. And this is what Paul writes. Now, it is Paul who was... Also named Saul, he was a persecutor of the church, he's been saved, he's been traveling around the world, the known world at that time, teaching people about Jesus. He's now writing to the church at Corinth. Corinth was a not-so-good place. And the people that were in the church had been not-so-good people. But as they came to the Lord Jesus Christ, they were growing, as you or I might be. And Paul writes this to them in chapter 11, beginning verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And so first of all, you see, he's delivering to them what he received from God. Now, there has been some theological debate as to where Paul got the full basis of his doctrine. In the early days when he first got saved, he didn't go running to the disciples so they could teach him everything they knew. He actually had to distance himself almost immediately because he was under attack, going to be killed for all the persecuting and all the, and because he had now turned over to the Christian way. And so he didn't get that kind of seminary degree or teaching theologically or whatever. We don't know where he got it all. But here he says he got from God, the Lord, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And so we know that the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was instituting what we now call the Lord's Supper. Some people call it communion. We know that it entails bread and we know that it entails juice. And some people say the bread has to be without yeast, but that's not really biblical that it has to be without yeast. 
There are some verses that talks about how sin is like yeast and it spreads through the whole dough. And some would say, well, if you have bread for your Lord's Supper that has yeast in it, you have sin in your bread. I don't know where that comes from. I mean, that's really... That's stretching it a little bit. It's going a little too far, maybe. Some would say that the bread literally becomes the flesh of Jesus. We're eating his little finger or whatever, like this transubstantiation thing that goes on. And I don't think so. Pretty sure we bought this bread at Lifeway. I was there when it happened. I don't think there's a miracle like that happening. Now, there's a miracle happening, and I'm going to show you that. But that's not what's really happening. Okay? And, and Jesus wasn't really saying that on the night. And even when Jesus says, you've got to eat of my flesh, he wasn't really talking about that little piece of bread becoming his flesh. Okay? So there's a lot of doctrinal stuff that gets wrapped up in this. But this is what Paul said. That on the night of his betrayal, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he said, Thank you, God, for this bread and for this time together. You know, like you or I, you or I might pray. He broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, in some translations of the Bible, in the middle of those verses, you'll see the words, My body, which is broken. For you. The New American Standard just says, My body, which is for you. And literally in the Greek, it says, My body, which is for you. So I would ask you to think for a moment and say, Why is it that some people would want to put which is broken for you in this verse? Well, first of all, the bread was broken. He took the bread and he tore the bread in half, but you and I both know most bread, you tear it in half. I mean, that flat kind of bread, you can sign it, but you can't tear it neatly. You can fold it a hundred times and still get not a nice tear, right? You're going to get a broken piece of bread. And so the imagery is broken. We also know that Jesus's, the imagery of Jesus' death was that he was broken. I mean, they whipped him until he was near dead. And he had already prayed until he had bled and sweat until he had bled. And then, so his pores were very susceptible to being broken open. And then they whipped him until he was near dead. And then they hung him on a cross, pounding nails in him. Um, and then he had to push himself up and grind the flesh off his back again and again to be able to exhale to take another breath. So it was like he was broken. But you know what the interesting fact is? He wasn't technically broken. Not only was he not broken physically, because we know at the end of crucifixion, usually they come around and break their legs. But when they come around to break Jesus' legs, they didn't have to because he was already dead. But to be 100% sure that he was already dead, they did run him through with a spear, pierced his heart, and blood and water flowed out. So they were 100% sure that he was dead, but that he was never broken. His bones were not broken. Now, the Old Testament said that his bones would be separated. And separation is like breaking. Except it doesn't quite look the same on the surface, but he was stretched out on a cross. And so his joints were stretched and separated, but no bone in his body was broken. And so to say that his body was broken, that's not literally true. And they said, well, was he broken spiritually or psychologically? Well, no, because he knew exactly what he was doing. And actually he was in victory. He was winning at the crucifixion. He wasn't losing. He was being crucified because he chose. He he said, I have the right to lay down my life and take it up again. My father has given that to me and that's what I'm going to do for you. And that's what he did. He wasn't broken. He willfully allowed himself to be crucified. So he wasn't spiritually, psychologically, or physically broken. But there is one place in, in the New Testament where it talks about it, and the word broken actually does appear. And so it's been adapted from there. And in this text, in the, originally in 1 Corinthians uh, 11, when it was re- the original text, many times the word broken was there. And this is a fact. Jesus was crushed. And crushed is a lot like broken. But he was crushed for our iniquities. That's what Isaiah wrote many years, 700 years before this, before Jesus actually died. But here's what it says. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Man, when something is for you, that can mean a lot. It's really a big packed phrase, right? You know, Kathy, I'm going to say I'm for you. Now that means something, right? I am working in your best interest. I love you. I'm willing to put myself out. Jesus was all of those things. And he was saying his body was for us. 
But I submit to you that it's even more powerful impact than that. It was a substitute for us. It stood for us. And we might be crushed for our iniquities, and instead he was being crushed for our iniquities. So it was a substitute, and we'll come back to that thought. But he says, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we're not to forget, not to forget the sacrifice of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, who Jesus was. And that's part of what the Lord's Supper is all about. And for us not to forget. Now, remember, this is, 1 Corinthians 11 is written to Christians. So this is people who already know Jesus. So again, if I explained that simple gospel at the beginning there, and so if you, if you didn't accept by the time we get to the point that I'm reading this to you right now, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, that Jesus Christ is, can be your Lord and Savior, that you can be forgiven and you're going to live for Him. If you've not accepted that already, then some of the things that I'm explaining here, you're going to go, ah, you know, not quite there, don't quite get it, don't quite follow it, not really feeling it. Right? And I get that, because this is one side of the story that Paul is giving us. And it is the side of the story where you've already realized the cross is a real place, and it's the place at which sins were paid for, and Jesus Christ really was resurrected. Those are historical events, but the bottom line, the bottom line is, if you've not accepted that, then what I, the things I'm about to share with you are going to come a little bit caustic. They're going to rub you a little bit the wrong way. And so if you haven't, and you're willing, do it now. Second chance. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, do this in remembrance of me at the end of 24. See how Jesus is using vivid symbolism to help us to remember his sacrifice. He instituted this the night of his betrayal. Before his death, which he had already said would happen, the bread made a good image because it tears but not cleanly. Note the word broken not there. Verse 25 says, In the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant. On the cup was wine or grape juice, not a big difference between the two back then, right? Pure grape juice. You go buy like Welch is 100% grape juice. They would have called that wine. You know, grape juice wasn't a thing. It was the juice of the grape, which was, by the way, what? Wine. So it's, you know, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't mean you can't use wine, but wine is a stumbling block for some folks. So we tend to use grape juice, but we could use wine. We just don't. Okay. So again, don't get all wrapped up in doctrine and all that kind of stuff that it's got to be one thing or another. Because that's reading a lot in there that's not necessarily there. He's teaching us about something that we need to see. He took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant, my blood. Not literally his blood, okay? Not talking about the juice becomes literally his blood, but symbolically saying, this is my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so in other words, he's instituting this activity, the Lord's Supper, communion, what we call it, as a reminder of his sacrifice of what was going to happen, his body and his blood and who he was. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, I want to be completely clear about this. Jesus is not saying, remember me in all of my teachings through the Lord's Supper. He's not saying, remember me in the gospel through the Lord's Supper. He says, and often as you do this, you proclaim, what did he say? My death. So this is one side of the story. Jesus died. The Lord's Supper is one side of the story. You proclaim my death. I, want, I know you want to say that everything that we do as a church proclaims the gospel. And if he died, then it begs the question, why is he a savior? And the answer to that question, of course, is because he rose again and proved that he overcame death and sin and so on. So we, we understand that he was God in the flesh. And there's more to it. But that's the other side of the story. This side of the story is Jesus died. He, it said, he said, you do it to proclaim my death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 
shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Okay, now, that scares me a little bit. Because if you drink or eat unworthily, you can be guilty, and let's, let's say it this way, of crucifying Jesus. I got a feeling God's not going to be too nice to people who are guilty of crucifying Jesus. I know you want to think God is love, he's mercy and kindness, and he is that. He's that, no doubt about it. But that's one side of the story. Don't get so wrapped up in the one side of the story that salvation is free and all paid for and you can live to the glory of God without any effort, work, any sacrifice, any repentance of sin and be saved just by accepting the free gift. Don't get wrapped up in just one side of the story. It's true, but it's just one side of the story because God is also just. He is also omniscient, which means he knows everything. He looks into the hearts of men. And so there can be those people that are not willing to accept Jesus the way Jesus needs to be accepted to be saved. They're willing to accept it, but not the way it needs to be done. And they're not saved. In fact, this says that those people could actually be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord in taking this bread and cup unworthily. I want to know what that means. I want to know what unworthily means because I'm a little nervous about me or you or any of us taking the cup unworthily. And so then he says, but a man, or in contrast, or knowing then that you can take it unworthily, this is what you must do. Examine himself or herself. Examine yourself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and the drink of the cup. Now we're back to what we're supposed to do. And it's sort of a two-point thing, right? I want you to see. First of all, you must examine yourself. Now, here's what's going to happen. This is the truth. This is a dangerous thing when you examine yourself. Because sometimes you examine yourself and you find yourself to be unworthy, right? Oh, I lied, I hurt them. I, I said this, I did wrong. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm unworthy. I feel unworthy. As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you can look at yourself and feel unworthy. That, I should, that I'm just one person. That God should die for me? That's pretty incredible. That's, I feel unworthy. And so, of course, if I feel unworthy, then the natural extension of that, I should not take the Lord's Supper. Right? Except, what does it say? Examine yourself, and then take the bread and the drink. It's a command. So we don't really get the option. So you're going to examine yourself. And the truth is you're probably going to examine yourself and find yourself in some way unworthy of Jesus dying for you. Even as a Christian. Should be that way. If you don't find anything wrong with yourself and you take a good long hard look at yourself, you're probably a little bit prideful. That's a reality. If you can't find any sin in your life, you make God out to be a liar because he said all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if you can't find it, See, because you're not looking at you're looking at something else, so you're not seeing it. There's sin. There's sin in your life. And if there's sin in your life, then what right do you have to ask God to die for you? That doesn't make sense. So there ought to be a feeling of unworthiness there. But if there's a feeling of unworthiness there, that does not excuse you from taking the bread and the cup. Because that's a command. He says, a man must examine himself, and in so doing, it, as part of the process, or in the process of examining himself, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. You have to look deeply into yourself and into your affairs and into your choices. You have to look at who you are and what you are and then take the cup and the bread. That's what he says. For or because he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Okay, and there's, some, there's something subtle going on there and there's something obvious. So we're going to do the obvious first. So in other words, if you take the Lord's Supper, if you eat the bread and take the drink, 
And you do so without properly judging. You drink and eat judgment to yourself. Judgment is when a person is found guilty. Okay? And so God finds you guilty because of your choice not to look at yourself before taking the bread and the cup. That's what it says. So it's a process. It's a defense, if you will, that you have. You have this defense. Examine yourself. Find yourself unworthy. Take the cup and the bread. So there's something subtle that's going on in the background there, and we have to see that as well. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Hear that last phrase, judge the body rightly. There's something going on different there, like it's not my body of acts, it's not my body of thoughts, it's not the body or the condition of my spirit that I'm judging, it's my body. And so it's what I've done, it's what I ate, it's what I said. It's how I hurt people or the thoughts that I had that were not right. And essentially, if I, if I can say it this way, what you need to do is you need to realize, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 7, that there is a, a you that do and a you that be. And your, your goal is to bring the you that do in line with the you that be. But the reality is, as you prepare to take the bread and the juice, you ought to be able to say, the me that do is not in line with the me that be. And you need to take steps Make decisions to bring the two together, to get control of your flesh, to get control of your choices. You're not going to do it perfectly. You're not even going to be able to do it that day. If you lied seven times in the last month and you go to take the Lord's Supper, you say, I got to look at myself. And you go, man, I, I lied seven times in the last month. You say, I can count them. I lied to this person. I lied to that person. That person cried when I lied to them. That person got really mad at me. That person is not, still not talking to me. Oh, I can count seven people I lied to in the last month. How are you going to fix that in the three or four minutes that you're going to spend thinking about the fact that you lied and the last seven, seven times in the last month? You're not. You're not going to fix it. So you repent of what you've done. You turn to the Lord. You let him forgive you. And you purpose yourself not to lie seven times in the next month. Right? So now I'm walking with the Lord. Now I'm turning to the Lord for his strength and his freedom to not do that which I've already done. Christians are not perfect and they're not essentially going to be perfect. They are complete in the Lord, meaning the you that be is your spirit is in Christ already. You're already with the Lord if you're saved. You are cleansed of all unrighteousness, old, present, and future at the moment of your salvation. Then you go and you sin. You do what's wrong. That makes you unworthy to receive the bread and the juice. And you may not even know it. Or you certainly don't want to think about it because very few people like to spend time. You might be like on a sadist kind of thing and you want to sit around and think about how horrible you are. You may have real self-esteem issues and want to think about how such a bad person you are and that's your excuse why you don't do anything in the world. But none of that is Jesus following. None of that is Jesus' people. We are his children. We don't come to him in a spirit of fear. Right? We recognize that we have shortcomings and we do something about it. That's what Jesus' people do. And so in that moment, you're called to do that. Judge your body rightly. Yeah, if, if, if I was going to go to heaven or hell based on what my body has done, I'd go to hell. That's the right judgment. But my spirit has been cleansed in Christ and now I need to continue to bring my body in line with my cleansed spirit, my following of the Lord. Realize he's saying, in order to be found not guilty here, you have to eat and drink. But in order to be, not found, to be found not guilty, you have to eat and drink worthily. And then you look at yourself and you say, I'm not worthy to eat and drink. I can't fix that. But he can. Amen. 
And so essentially, it's like another salvation. Except there isn't another salvation, there's only one. It's like another cleansing, but there isn't, there's only one. It's like another righteousness bestowed again, anew, afresh, but there isn't another righteousness, there's only one. It's the one that comes through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 30 then. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Okay, now that's, that's rough stuff. So in the church in Corinth, there were people who were taking the Lord's Supper without examining themselves or upon examining themselves and finding themselves unworthy rather than turning themselves back over to the Lord and letting the Lord fix it. They were continuing forward. They didn't want anybody to know. And so they would take of the cup and the drink unworthily. And the result of that was many were weak, sick, and sleeping. And sleeping doesn't mean they were taking a nap. It means they were dead. And so now we see that there is something going on in this lifetime. This is, so now the, the Lord's Supper, which is about proclaiming his death, is also about avoiding the ramifications of the judgment that we might receive if we unworthily take it. You follow my thought process? So in other words, if you don't want to be weak, sick, or dead, one side of the story, if you don't want to be weak, sick, or dead, you better take the Lord's Supper worthily. And I've already described that process to you to some extent. Enough. To be weak. Well, to not be able to do anything about your problems. To not be able to lift it, to not be able to fix it, to not be able to think it through, to not be able to talk it out not be able to pay it. It's to be weak. That's what it means to be weak. And there were weak people in Corinth and they were weak because they were not taking the Lord's Supper worthily. To be sick. To have an ailment. Diagnosed or undiagnosed. Can't get out of bed. Struggling with weakness. Whatever. Your mind's not right. Your body's not right. There were people in Corinth who had sickness because they were taking the Lord's Supper unworthily. To be dead. That's when your heart stops beating. Your brain stops waving. You're no longer living. No longer making a difference in this world. You've been translated into the next life. Now, it doesn't say unsaved. There were Christians who believed in the Lord, accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, took the Lord's Supper unworthily, and in time, they died and went to heaven. Well, this is pretty extreme stuff here. It's saying that if you as a Christian of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you have been cleansed of your sin and you cannot recognize the sacrifice of Jesus and how important it was, how much it cost, and let Jesus be in charge of your life, and yet you can go on to practice in the ceremony, is probably what you make it, or the ritual is probably what you make it. If you can go on and participate in that and let everybody think that you're okay, then God is done with you on this earth. And He could take you home. I want to be clear because this does not mean that everybody who does not take the Lord's Supper dies. Or everybody who does not take the Lord's Supper gets sick. Or everybody who does not take the Lord's Supper is weak. It does not even mean that everybody who takes the Lord's Supper unworthily will wind up sick, weak, or dead. What it does mean is that they will be exposed to a judgment of God in this lifetime and he's going to do something. Because he never, you find once in scripture, he never makes a judgment and does nothing. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number asleep. God disciplines people by allowing them to be weak, sick, and die. 
I, you don't have to like it. It's just a fact. I don't like it. I really don't like it. But I'm not God. Verse 31. Listen. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. So that judgment that he just said is delivered onto people who take the Lord's Supper unworthily, and I've already explained that to you, could be avoided if we simply judged ourselves rightly. If we would look at ourselves and say, as Paul writes elsewhere, I have sinned. I'm only going to get into heaven because of the grace of God. I'm a work in progress. I've got to be working and in progress. Following the Lord the way I should, the best I know how. And as I know more, I hold on to what I have already attained and strive to do more. And if you're not, then you would be taking the Lord's Supper unworthily, subject, subjecting yourself to this judgment that he himself says he bears down on those who take it unworthily. And you say, well, okay, well, if that's the case, I just won't take it. But I submit to you that then you would be subjecting yourself to the same judgment. Because you would be despising the sacrifice of his son, which the Lord's Supper proclaims. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. So judge yourself rightly. This is our solution. Think of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector who went to temple one day. And the tax collector falls down before the Lord and says, oh, well, am I a sinner? Right? And he says, he would not even look up at the Lord. He came before the Lord in humility. He would not even look up and he says, cleanse me a sinner for I am a sinner. But there was a man who was a pretty good guy there. He's a Pharisee. And he come in and he said, thank God. I am, thank you, Lord, that I he looked up at the Lord. He said, thank you, Lord. I am not like these others. And if you take the Lord's Supper like that guy, according to that parable, what Jesus says, you take it like the first guy, you'll be justified, found not guilty of the death of Jesus Christ. But if you take it like the other guy, the guy who says, thank God I'm not like this sinner, you'll be found unworthy. This is not about anybody having sin. Everybody has sin. You're not going to not have sin. I think we covered that. It's Romans 3.23. It's in the other side of the story, but it's there. We all have it. It's not about whether you have sin or not. It's about whether you rightly judge the sin you have. Engage your brain. Stop and think about what it says about the sacrifice of Jesus when you go on and do some of the things that you're doing that do not honor God. And it can be subtle or small. That's why we have to stop and examine ourselves. You get a bone breaking. I think my bone might be breaking. You get an x-ray. You look at your spiritual life. There could be something wrong here. You look deeply at it and determine, is there something wrong? And if there is, you turn it over to the Lord so He can cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We live between there. And we need to lean toward the one who says, Oh, Lord, I am a filthy, wretched sinner, and I am saved by grace. And I turn myself over to you anew, afresh. And I know that that's dangerous because as Paul wrote in Romans 8.1, it says, There is now, therefore, no more condemnation in Christ. Right? In other words, you cannot be found guilty of your sin and sentenced to hell if you have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Can't be. And so you shouldn't feel like you have been. You shouldn't allow yourself to feel like you are guilty of your sin and going to hell. Because there is now, therefore, no more condemnation for he who walks in Christ At the same time, don't go, well, because I'm not guilty of my sin and going to hell, my sin doesn't matter. Because it does. 
You're hurting people and hurting yourself. You're contaminating your own house. You're contaminating your relationships. You're contaminating your best friend. You're contaminating your children. Your sin is destroying you and everyone around you. And then you come to the table at which Jesus pictures again for you the sacrifice that he paid to make sure that that doesn't happen. You're continuing in the things that you're doing and you take the bread and the juice going, eh, huh. Listen to me. On the day of the cross, absolutely no one was going, eh, huh. Everyone was going, yay, or no. It's a catalyzing event. Decide where you stand. And if you stand with Jesus, recognizing the sacrifice that He paid for you, then a little effort would be good. A little consideration of the sacrifice that He made for you. The cost is extreme. Paul said it this way, so I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You think Paul didn't know he was going to heaven? People always like, ah, oh, he's working out his salvation with fear and trembling. Telling everybody, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul knew he was going to heaven. Truth is, I know I'm going to heaven. The question is not about whether you're going to heaven or not. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you realize you have sinned, you've repented of that sin, turned your life over to God, you are going to heaven. Settle it once and for all. That's the gospel. It's the other side of the story. But that being said, it also is about how will you get there? Will you get there weak? Will you get there sick? Will you die before your time? Will you suffer any number of ailments or maladies because you have spit upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who died for you? Verse 32 says, But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with this world. Now wait a minute, you've got to hear that equation and exactly the way it works out. This is what happens. Folks come to the Lord's table. They take the bread and the juice. They refuse to examine themselves. They refuse to repent and confess and turn their lives over to Jesus. They refuse to be renewed again and they take it. And that is the greatest gift they ever received. Hear me now. Because it isn't the death of Jesus anymore because they've spit on that. That's clearly not the greatest gift they've ever received. But it's the greatest gift they've ever received. God makes them weak or sick or lets them die so that they won't go to hell. Ah, it's not me. It's right there. I read it. I'll read it again just so you're clear. But when we are judged, why are we judged? We're judged because we took it unworthily. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord that's the weak, the sick, and the dying, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. You hear it? It's right there. If you take the Lord's table unworthily, if you take the bread that represents His body and the juice that represents His blood unworthily, if you will not examine yourself and turn your life over to Jesus Christ, here's the best prayer you can pray. God, kill me. God, make me weak. God, make me sick because I don't want to go to hell. It's right there. And the people who were in Corinth who had died because they took the table unworthily were in heaven with Jesus and they were celebrating. And you think they didn't look back at the year they spent fighting their disease or the years they spent overcoming their weakness or struggling through? You think they didn't look back and go, oh, thank you God for disciplining me that way so I could be here now. No! They have all the more to rejoice about in heaven because they were like, thank you, Lord Jesus, that even when I spit on the memory of the sacrifice of your son, 
You let me suffer in my life so that I can live in eternity in glory and grace. Now, you, you're making the decision. You're deciding whether or not to take the Lord's Supper, which is a command, so that would be a direct sin against God if you refuse to do so, or whether or not to take it worthily, which is the only way to take it safely. Get this then. God saves us by disciplining us or allowing us to suffer here and now instead of at the end of an eternity. But I don't think that's what we want. That's God's solution if we should be so disrespectful to the death of His Son to refuse to examine ourselves and turn our lives over to Him again. But I don't think it's what we want. Jesus died for this salvation. He died to defeat sin and death once and for all and to set us free. And in our freedom, we have the ability to look at what we have done and say, that wasn't right. And if you are so unstable that when you look at what you have done, you say, that wasn't right, and you crumble under the weight of the guilt of your feelings about what you did, then you are not a follower of Jesus. You don't have to have guilt. Jesus paid for that. So if you can't look at what you did without guilt, then there is a problem between you and Jesus. And you right now need to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord. That means He tells you what to do and you do it. And your Savior, that means He paid the price for your sin. He died on the cross for your sin. And live accordingly, eternally. Forever. You think God wants you to go to heaven and 31st day you're in heaven go, oh man, when I was on earth I, I told a lie and really hurt somebody. I feel horrible. Nobody's going to be in heaven doing that. You'd be totally out of place. You're in heaven you go, you know, oh man, I feel sick to my stomach because of what I did to Sally back in fourth grade. No! It's gone! Gone, gone, gone! Because of this. Because what we deserved went on Jesus. But if you won't accept it, you don't have it. And if you have accepted it and then later go on to despise the means by which it was accomplished, spitting on the sacrifice of Jesus, living unworthily, unwilling to examine yourself, unwilling to look deeply into your life and figure out what does not align with God and make changes and let God change you, be renewed in your mind over those things that you're unwilling to do that, fear not, God has taken care of it. He will make you sick, perhaps. Or let you die, perhaps. Make you weak, perhaps. And you'll still get to go to heaven. And if you're afraid of that, perhaps it's right that you should be so. And take it worthily. The Lord's Supper is about his death. He died. A horrible death. The kind of death that you or I probably couldn't even die because most of us are too weak. There are a few men in here who probably do it, physically speaking. He died. They saw him die. It was a historic event. Word traveled throughout the region of known male and female population. Adults everywhere were hearing about Jesus dying. It was a historic event, and everyone was hearing about it. 
And then it became a local and a worldwide spectacle. More so than the Olympics. More so than a world war. More so than any story that makes the news. It became a worldwide spectacle. Listen. If Jesus knew he was going to die for the sins of mankind, and he knew he was going to raise again on the third day, and these are facts, and he stayed with his disciples for 40 days and explained to them all that it meant and all that it was, why did he on the night of his betrayal enact a quiet, simple ritual with a small piece of unleavened bread and a little bit of juice so that people would not forget his death? He didn't need to do that. He said, this will proclaim my death until I come again. Why did he do it? He did it because this is the original invitation. This is the original moment in time at which you have to ask yourself, have I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and begin to follow him if you have not? Or if I have accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, have I not been doing what I said I would do and begin to do what you said you would do or not? This is the original invitation. It's the original question. Do you recognize that Jesus died for you? So much so that when Jesus was walking, he said, if you eat not of my flesh and drink not of my blood, you have no part with me. And he wasn't talking about eating his little finger or drinking his blood like they were trying to make it out to be in that day. He was talking about this. If you do not take of it, you have no part with me. If you take of it unworthily, but you've accepted my, me in name and in deed as Lord and Savior otherwise, but you take it unworthily, un, unwilling to examine yourself, then I will take care of it. And the I will take care of it may not be pleasant, but at least you get to go to heaven for an eternity. It's the original invitation. You know, altar calls weren't even invented until just over 100 years ago. They had the Lord's Supper. The mourner's bench wasn't invented until just over 100 years ago. They had the Lord's Supper. This is the original invitation. They got together. And if you were not living for the Lord, you didn't want to go. But you knew you had to. Because he said, if you don't eat of my body and drink of my blood, you will not be with me for an eternity. You will have no part with me. So you knew you had to. So you had to go. And what does it leave? You had to examine yourself. Otherwise, you're opening yourself up to the condemnation for the righteous judgment that you would receive for spitting on the memory of the one who died for you. It's about his death, but it's also about his atoning sacrifice not to be forgotten. In fact, he was our death. 2 Corinthians 5, it says that this, this much we know that if one died for all, you understand the basic mathematic principle of substitution, right? If one died for all, then all died, right? That's what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses four, verse 14. And in 15, he said, and then he died that those who live may live for him. And so if this reminds us that he died, it reminds us that we died. And if it reminds us that he died, it reminds us that we died, then it reminds us that we now live for him. This is the original invitation leading us to the understanding that his was an atoning sacrifice. He paid for our sins. And in that one can find perfect love. And perfect love casts out all fear. Look deeply at yourself. 
at the acts of your body. Find them disgusting. Find them hurtful. Find them wicked. And begin to walk away from them into the arms of a loving Savior. Jesus is the bread. He is the blood. You take it or suffer. Take it unworthily and suffer. That leaves one option. Take it worthily. And have a life of peace in Christ. That's the problem. The funny thing about sin is it literally becomes part of who we are. A man steals and they call him a thief. A man lies and they call him a liar. It literally becomes part of who we are. But if you've accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, your spirit is renewed and your spirit is yearning to bust out, to get control, to change everything, to stand up and be big, to stand up and show power, to stand up and make a difference. When you look at yourself and see your flesh inhibiting that, you say, why am I stopping me from being great? And that's what it means. And you say, Lord, I don't want to stop me from being great. I want to be great. Every moment of every day and every time I spend on the earth and in your kingdom and for an eternity. I'm going to have a little... Did someone take my shield? There it is. I have a little object lesson for a second. I never played music in the room, so I got distracted. You distracted me. I said that thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I needed a volunteer. <laughs> a volunteer. All right, Christian. All right, come on. Oh, I, I probably shouldn't let you because Arden's officially not allowed to play dodgeball right now. But He's not allowed to run. He's not allowed to run. We're going to hold that step back a little bit. I'm going to give you a surprise here. I'm going to give you a little picture of. I'm going to step back a little bit more. I'm going to get away from the table so we're in an accident. And a little picture of what's going on at the Lord's Supper. This ball represents judgment and eternity in hell. And Arden is going to throw it at Christian's chest. His chest specifically? Yes, sir. This shield, this shield represents the sacrifice of Christ that is pictured in the Lord's Supper. Why don't you hold it up in front of your chest? Go ahead, throw it at his chest. Okay? Safe. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we are safe from an eternity in hell, an eternity in separation from God. This ball represents judgment here on earth. Suffering for cleansing, for healing of a sort. I know that's hard to understand. But then we might still have that eternity in heaven. And we move the sacrifice of Jesus to the Lord's Supper. <laughs> and it hurts. Thank you. The Lord's Supper was given that we may remember the sacrifice of Jesus. It wasn't really necessary. It's a great gift. The word spread throughout all the world. You know, I heard about Jesus and accepted him as Lord and Savior before I heard about the Lord's Supper. And decade before I understood what it meant. It wasn't really necessary. It was a gift. A protection. This is our protection. Jesus sacrificed himself to pay for our sins. 
And an eternity in heaven awaits for those who really accept and are willing to believe what he taught. But there are those who will do so. And then, because they are now freed from that risk of eternity in hell, because they are now saved forever, they will live according to their own wants and desires. And for some of those, as they will not look at them, they will not take the Lord's Supper, or they will look at themselves, not judge themselves as unworthy in their body, not judge themselves rightly as having sinned, not judge themselves as needing a Savior every day. Those folks expose themselves to sickness and weakness and death. A lot of reasons to suffer in this world. I'm not saying that all, that all sickness, weakness, and death is because of this. It's not. It's just not. Creation is damaged. It has been ever since the fall. Basically resists men. And so we have disease. And so we have weakness environmentally. Floods, tornadoes, etc. There's a lot of suffering that just comes because of creation. And then there's a lot of suffering that comes because of other people's sin. But there's also a lot of suffering that comes because of our sin. I know a man who accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior... In fact, he suffered a great tragedy and two weeks later in between and so I thought he was going to walk away for sure. And he didn't. He stayed firm. He was baptized two weeks later. Lived for the Lord. But over a period of time, he fell back into his old ways. Within about six months, he, he wouldn't stop. Then finally, I caught him selling drugs in the church parking lot. Oh. We kicked him off the grounds and he never came back. I was still out there. But he went almost straight from that incident into sickness. He's weak spiritually and he's sick physically. I'm not saying God did that. That's not my place. I am saying that the Lord has shown us clearly through his scripture that he can do that if he judges you to be guilty of the sin of crucifixion of Jesus. Better take it worthily. I met a young man and a young woman in the grocery store. I'd known them for several years. Both of them had accepted Christ through our ministry, extensions of our ministry. She had had health issues for a long time. And when she accepted Christ, her health all got better. All the problems went away. Got a job, got a vehicle. Everything was going good. She was with us for several months and then walked away from the church to take a, a Sunday job and stop coming to church at all. And the vehicle broke down and the exact same health problems that she had before came back. She repented, came back to the Lord, confessed her sins publicly. A couple months later, things were going good. She had a vehicle, gas, and insurance, a house. And then, she started falling back. She got with another man, living with him, her falling away from the Lord, not living the way she said she would. And the car broke down. She didn't have enough money to get a towed. It got impounded. She couldn't get it out of impound. She lost the job at the same time. Somebody lied about her and said that she stole, which she never did. She said she never did. Lost her job. You wonder why Christians who are followers of the Lord who claim the name of Christ are going up and down and up and down because if you don't go up and down, up and down during this lifetime, you may not go into the next in the way that you desire to. I'm asking you, Jesus is asking you, His Word is telling you, He loves you, He died for you, accept it and live accordingly. <coughs> and don't take the cup or the bread unworthily. Examine yourself. Think deeply about what you're doing. And how it doesn't line up with who you are in Christ. Set yourself on the path to make the necessary changes. You can't do it in an instant. But it's amazing how God responds when we just decide. I took a woman home from the doctor one day, struggling in weakness and finances, talking to her about tithing. 
sat in the car. She said, you know, I think I'm going to go ahead and do it. I'm just going to tie. I'm just going to give, give the money I'm supposed to. So I'm $150 in debt every month anyway. Before I got out of the parking lot, she called me on my cell phone and said, you know what just happened? I came in the house and all my money problems are in. I got two, two messages on my answer machine. One was this and one was that. And now I, my budget balance is with the tithe. Three and a half minutes. That's all it takes. I'm just saying, examine yourself and put yourself in the charge of Jesus. I think he's earned that. Let me pray for you briefly and then we'll have a uh, song. Uh, we'll do a more formal invitation today. We'll have a song, an invitation, an opportunity for you to respond and walk forward and say, I, I have not been living for the Lord Jesus. Whether you said you would or not, it doesn't even matter. You say, I have not and I want to. I'm committing myself again to do so today. And during this prayer that I'm about to pray, I'm asking you to examine yourself. Would God say, not would Pastor Dan say, it doesn't matter what I think. The fact is, what I think changes so fast I can't keep up. It doesn't matter. What matters is what God thinks. Would God say you are saved? If not, get saved right now. Just say, okay, God, I'm willing to be saved. Let him work out the details. And if God would say that you're saved, but you've not been living for him accordingly, examine yourself. Say, hey, my actions do not line up with the fact that I'm saved. You repent and let God begin to fix that. Let God begin to change that. In an instant, he can cleanse you. In an instant, And you may make the toughest choices that you'll ever have to make. But you'll be choosing a life and eternity and love and peace with God over all that. Which isn't so good. It really isn't. It may look good. But it isn't. Let's pray together. God in heaven, you have given us what seems to be in the scripture sort of like a two-fold plan. Thank you for listening to all or a portion of this full-length New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church worship service. New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church is located in East Toledo at 255 Hefner Street, 43605. If you'd like to reach out to the church, our phone number is 419-469-8808. Our website is newheightsfellowshipchurch.org where you can find lots more information about the church, its connections, and how to give you may you can mail uh, information to the church at the address 255 Hefner 43605 you can also give to the ministry in some way if you wish by texting GIVE GIVE to 419-419-0095 if you'd simply like more information and updates about the ministry you may text INFO to that same phone number, 419-419-0095. If you'd like to partner with the ministry in some way other than financial, you may text P-A-R-T-N-E-R, the word partner, to 419-419-0095. supposed to